0: Maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim.
1: You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially
2: antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi Project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi Project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more.
3: Britain does have choices. It's not either-or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice.
2: Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts.
0: What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing...
2: In recent days and weeks, the world has been gripped by events unfolding in Afghanistan. As the United States has withdrawn troops and the Taliban has swept to power, we've been trying to put together the pieces of what this means for the Afghan people and the world more broadly. So in today's special episode, broken into two parts, we'll be first speaking to Shabnam Nazimi, British Afghan commentator, And then in part two, we speak to Jeremy Bowen, BBC Middle East editor and Shadi Hamid, senior fellow at the Brookings Institute and author of Islamic Exceptionalism. And the podcast is hosted by Manveen Rana, senior investigative journalist at The Times and host of the excellent podcast Stories of Our Times. We hope you benefit from today's episode. And if you'd like to hear more from our speakers, you can find links for their work and podcasts in the episode description. But now let's go to the episode.
4: The Taliban, a militant Islamist group that ran most of Afghanistan in the late 1990s, have taken back control of the country. The US-led invasion under President George W. Bush in 2001 ousted the hardline political movement from power, but they never left. And after 20 years of war, the Taliban have swept to victory again. The group completed their rapid advance across the country by capturing Kabul on August 15th, shortly after the US forces announced their final withdrawal. The decades of conflict have killed tens of thousands and displaced millions of Afghans. Taliban forces have pledged not to allow the country to become a base for terrorists who could threaten the West. But questions are already being asked about how the group will govern the country and what their rule means for human rights, political freedoms and the geopolitics of the region. I'm Manveen Rana, and in this episode, we'll speak to experts about what's next for Afghanistan. Our first guest today is Shabnam Nasimi, a British-Afghan activist and political commentator. She is the Executive Director of Conservative Friends of Afghanistan, an influential group that exists to promote the understanding and support for Afghanistan in the United Kingdom. Shabnam, thanks for joining us. In the last few days, we've all been gripped By the news coming out of Afghanistan and watching the scenes unfold, your own family fled the country in 1999, essentially because of the Taliban at the time. I wonder if you could just tell us what the past few days have been like for you. You know, what what have your thoughts and your emotions been watching as the Taliban have swept across the country again?
3: Thank you. Mavine. The past few days I've felt like I've been dreaming. I didn't think that the country would ever have to face Taliban rule ever again and it was something my parents and my family fled from because they knew that as a a girl as a young girl and as a woman today I would have no future in a country like that and to think that after 20 years of international investment time effort money sacrifices that the country was handed over to the Taliban so easily is devastating and heartbreaking at the same time. And I understand that sense of betrayal and abandonment that Afghans speak so often about now. Um, they've been left stranded on their own. And I think that sense of humanity in this specific case uh, and in the last few days is where that's been lost. People have sensed, and particularly you know, the Afghan community in the UK as well, have just sense that you, when we need you you've 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 let us down and i'm just heartbroken that another lost generation of, of afghans will have to go through the trauma and through the violence of um, brutality of, of, of taliban rule unfortunately you know afghanistan has been in conflict since 1978 it's been ongoing and you know different regimes came and and, and went but this is the second time now that the country is under taliban control so The the future seems very bleak. I mean, you talk there about the sense of
4: betrayal and, and the sense of the country being handed over to the Taliban. What did you make of comments from people like President Biden, who said that the Afghans have got to fight for themselves and the Afghan army should have done more?
3: I've been infuriated over the last few days with Biden's statement that this was a forever war. We couldn't stay there any longer and that Afghans should have fought. Afghans did fight. You know, NATO and the U.S. and the international community from from 2014 onwards were there on a non-combat role. You weren't fighting. You were there as a morale, as a support system to provide logistics, to provide aircraft and to provide the training that the 400,000 Afghan forces required to fight insurgent groups and the Taliban. So to say that that is a reason for why you left, I don't buy it. I understand that You know, Trump's I remember when I I, I was infuriated with Trump introducing the peace process and starting the whole idea that we should withdraw. And I thought, you know, once we've got Biden in place, hopefully he will take he'll remove these decisions. And even if the peace process continues, that he will put conditions on the Taliban. When Biden came in, he made it a thousand times more worse. So I think we now know America's place in the world and it isn't one that is a friend or an ally and it isn't one that one that anyone can rely on anymore most of the reasoning and the logic behind why he said he left has uh, you know it's it's it mind boggles me because afghan people welcomed you you know you weren't you weren't kicked out you weren't forced out It was a choice that you've made by leaving and not and by leaving you haven't just left afghanistan you've left your position around the world and particularly in that region as a country that promotes human rights and democracy and freedom, because no one, your reputation as, as that that sort of nation um, that so much, so many countries around the world see as the land of the free, has completely been lost. I mean, you mentioned the
4: the Trump deal there. You know, President Trump did his own deal with the Taliban, which didn't include the Afghan government, back in February twenty twenty. I mean, I know that there was a very low level of of troop deployment in Afghanistan more recently. We have been there in just a support role. But given that that deal had been signed, and as part of that deal, hundreds of some of the, the, the fiercest Taliban fighters who had been in prison had been released. There was a sense that if, if the timeline wasn't stuck to, there would be another big offensive it probably would have needed more american and british troops on the ground i mean do do you have any sympathy for that where where do you attribute blame for for everything that has happened is it president biden is it the deal that came before
3: in the whole pro- the, the, the the issue started with Trump's deal with the Taliban and particularly laying no conditions down at all, allowing the Taliban to take control, to continue attacks across Afghanistan until their 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 prisoners were released. There's you know much of the blame go is is on the Americans, but you know I've always always also said that the Afghan government was a corrupt government that they had little engagement with the people, that these negotiation talks were mostly with the senior you know elite political elite they were with the same faces. men you've got Karzai and uh, Abdullah and Hani and you know their circle constantly in meetings in Russia and Iran and in and Doha and, and, and around the world and you didn't really see much of the Afghan people you know the probably less than one percent were involved in this peace process so how could you really understand what the people wanted first of all second of all no conditions were, were placed and and you you just gave the cut you know the cards were all on the table um so how could you expect the Taliban to compromise or agree to a ceasefire I think mistakes were made in, in that regard Biden then I think when he came in honestly the Afghan people had a lot more hope that he will take back what had happened that he will slowly begin or restart this process and allow the Afghan people to be consulted a lot more allow an opportunity for us to lay conditions and really work a lot more openly w- with the people and in an in, in inclusive process. The withdrawal was sudden, it was quick and when we talk about the fact that the country may have required more troops on the ground and more NATO troops well, you know, we've got, we've we, we had troops in, in, the, in, the, in the UK had had, had troops in, in Germany since 19, even when the second world, world war ended for for many years, out of endurance and perseverance, and we won the Cold War through that. You know, we've got uh, troops in Cyprus today, and the US has troops in South Korea, and and, and countless other places. And your and, and to say that you couldn't do the same for Afghanistan, and that it took a lot more time and effort, it, it is is something I don't accept. And even in Iraq today, there are 3,500 NATO troops there present simply to ensure that insurgent groups do not restart operations and more importantly i think it's really clear it's it's important to understand that with, with afghanistan you were there to promote western values and these values were accepted by the afghan people and Keeping harmony and peace in Afghanistan meant not only peace in the region, but it also meant peace in in your national countries, whether that's the U.S. or the U.K. or the West. So Afghanistan is a key location. It's the heart of Asia. It's always been a key location. By remaining there and investing time and energy, you would have ensured security globally. Now that's lost completely. And we're now left in, in, in an uncertain position where the MI5, CIA, and so many other intelligence uh, services are saying that Afghanistan may well become a terrorist haven once again. So we've made a huge strategic error, not only in terms of security, but in terms of betraying the very people who relied on your support and wanted you and welcomed you in that country because they wanted to live by the values that you promote.
4: I mean, for people who haven't been to Afghanistan, could you just paint a picture of what, you know, the last 20 years of having NATO on the ground, and we know that much of the population is under the, you know, is of the age where they don't, they've never even lived under Taliban rule, or they have no memory of it. Can you just paint a picture of what modern Afghanistan is like? What is it that you're afraid will be lost?
3: Sure. So I have returned to Afghanistan probably every year or every other year since since around 20, 2004. Met with politicians, activists, women, girls, students, NGOs. And the, the difference that I saw in the, this new Afghanistan was was, was, in, it was incredible. The confidence, the hope, there was something they were fighting for. You know, it wasn't all perfect. There was still attacks, there was still deaths, there was still violence but people had, there was a sense of, you know, ambition and hope that this was, they were moving forward. Women were able to study, they weren't able to work. I remember I, I went to cafe shops and restaurants and men and women would socialize together, girls, young boys. And this was, it did, you know, it felt like one any other country around the world, That you know, there was comfort, there was security. And particularly for my parents and my family members who weren't able to travel to other provinces and their homes in terms of like Padawan, where my father's from, and Lahman, where my mother's from. Previously, because of security, we were able to travel there countless times across different provinces provinces. provinces that's all gone you know you can't do that anymore from from what i'm hearing on the ground and i i'm daily contacted daily on daily basis by the you know friends and family who who i've been working with over the last couple of years and raising awareness who've told me time and time again that they actually asked for help they told the un they told the world that this is not a a, a group that we want to negotiate with because we we see the reality on a daily basis they wanted to be heard and, and they weren't. They were silenced. They weren't listened to. So what we're, what, what what's happening now, I guess, is, and what I'm so heartbroken over is that all of what you achieved, which took a lot of struggle, has, has now been lost. And, you know, 69 female MPs were in, in in the Afghan parliament, all of whose lives are now at risk. 20 years later, if we do go back, we'll have to start from scratch.
4: And Shabnam, you said that you're in touch with people on the ground every day. What are you hearing? How much has their life changed already, both in Kabul, but across the country?
3: On the streets, there are barely any women. My own family actually do not leave the house. They've Pulled up their curtains and they're not going to school, they're not going to university. Not because I, you know, I'm not hearing that the schools have been closed, but what I am hearing is people are too afraid to even go out. So over the last week or two, we are hearing of brutality in terms of violence. There is a lot of door-to-door patrols taking place, house searches, um, particularly the ones who the Taliban are looking for. And these are, are the ones that have been very outspoken against the Taliban, the ones that fought against the Taliban, so soldiers. So, you know, they're doing their, they're, they're beginning their their work in terms of laying out the, the landscape and figuring out what's what. In terms of what will happen moving forward, in my opinion, I think the Taliban are waiting Uh, for the international community to fully evacuate. They have very professional PR operations going on, very diplomatic and strategic, because they want to be recognised as a legitimate group and as a legitimate government. But once that door is closed and the world has left and Afghanistan is left alone, then we'll probably see the reality of what a Taliban government actually means. These are fighters. These are individuals who... uh, you know, all they know is violence and brutality. They have not been educated. So how could you expect a group like this to govern a country of 38 million people, and particularly a country that is incredibly impoverished, very poor, a humanitarian disaster is is on the brink. To, to govern a country like that, I don't believe the Taliban will be able to do that. You described sort
4: of a very slick PR operation, which, you know, we're all seeing coming out of... Uh, of Kabul, we're hearing the Taliban say things like, you know, they want to be more inclusive, they understand women have to have rights, a very different face of the Taliban than than the one that your parents escaped in the 1990s, when, you know, obviously, music was banned, women couldn't be educated. Do you believe there is any hope that, you know, if if they end up in a government, perhaps with sort of some of the uh, politicians from the government that's just fallen? Is there any hope that this might be a more moderate Version of the Taliban?
3: As we all um, may have seen, the press conference took place a couple of days ago by the Taliban where they invited journalists with a room filled of hundreds of, of reporters, mostly men. I initially thought there were no women present but some, uh, some people pointed out there were actually three female journalists one who was a foreign journalist um, those female journalists asked the Taliban whether women had any role in society in Afghanistan in this new Afghanistan moving forward whether they can study and work initially the Taliban didn't respond and said this, is, this will be up to the government the new government and when he did respond he said that uh, they will be able to work and study but only according to Islamic law or Sharia law now I think there's a lot of Skepticism to what this actually means. They are sugar, sugarcoating it. They are saying that it will happen, and they're finishing that sentence with "according to Islamic law." The Afghan government was an Islamic government. The Afghan constitution was an one it was an Islamic constitution. So, what makes the Taliban constitutional government different to what we already had in the last 20 years? What it says to me is that you are saying indirectly that it's very different and that women and girls will not actually be able to work because according to your islamic laws or beliefs women in these extreme beliefs that they have women have no role in society there is still a lot to, to be seen. We've, we've just got to keep eye, our eye on, on the country. I, I want to make sure that people don't suddenly ignore and forget what's happening once once the international community have fully evacuated and withdrawn. It's so important that we continue to listen, continue to raise raise awareness, because I think the reality of life under, under Afghanistan, in, in, under the Taliban rule in Afghanistan, will start to un, unravel once those doors are closed, and the Taliban have full control of every corner and street of Afghanistan and the airport. And we'll, we'll see what happens then. And for you, as, as a, a British Afghan,
4: I mean, what obligations do countries like Britain and America have to take Afghan refugees? You know, we've seen Boris Johnson announce a resettlement scheme for 20,000 people to come to the UK, with 5,000 to arrive by the end of 2021. Is that enough?
3: I don't think it's going far enough. I think we they, they they gave us the example of of using the Syrian resettlement scheme template for Afghans. Unfortunately, I don't believe this is a similar situation. Afghans have been in conflict for for many more years. I don't want to compare and contrast, but I think we need to take Afghanistan as a unique case. It is a place where war continues, violence continues, and the people have always been in dire need. So I think a lot more needs to happen. But more importantly... It's it, it's it's all about the imminent risk that these people that you are trying to protect uh, are in. Um, if these relocations and resettlement schemes don't take place now, saying that you're going to relocate five thousand now and the rest, you know, in the years to come, is not enough. Mo- the majority of them have to be now. I understand that the British government and the British society's infrastructure is not well equipped enough according to Priti Patel, uh, to be able to accommodate all of them now. But I think we need, this is a crisis. This is not about slowly taking it forward and making sure we've got the housing and the facilities. Uh, These people, once, if we don't protect them now, who knows whether they'll be alive tomorrow. We can figure out whether they can can be housed or what support they need once they're here. You know, we can take it slow once they've arrived in the UK. But making sure they leave is right now in the next whether it's through this evacuation process or whether in the next you know week or two or you know by the end of this month is, is the most crucial aspect of this relocation scheme. So I, I will be continuing to stress this to um, the government uh, and I will make sure that they understand that risk the risk of of, of of life it's a life and death situation and the risk is imminent so they have to act now.
4: And other than than accepting refugees, what else do you want to see the international community doing? You know, for example, should they be leaning in, trying to to form some sort of um, deal of co- cooperation with a future Taliban government in order to try to influence them and try to curtail, you know, s- sort of some of their their worst instincts, or should they just declare it a, a pariah state and and walk away?
3: I think it is crucial that we don't take our eye off this situation. Um, This is just the beginning of what's happening in Afghanistan. We have left militarily, you know, that's done the withdrawal has happened we've got to make sure we're not going to leave in a humanitarian way as well in a diplomatic way or or a, a political there needs to be pressure from the outside to make sure the taliban do not return to their old ways they've made lots of promises and we have to make sure that we hold them to that you know this is just the beginning of the catastrophe unfortunately i've been reiterating the same thing over again this will become a human tragedy in the making if we do not act and make sure that we engage, we build a relationship with the Taliban government. I'm not favoring the fact that we should l- recognize the government as, a, as a, legitimate, a legitimate sort of government of Afghanistan. I, I don't think we should. I think we simply should make sure that we engage, that we build a relationship and that we're constantly there keeping an eye so that the people do not feel abandoned in every other way. And I think it's also the moral obligation. Uh, it's, the burden's going to fall on us. We have to pick up the pieces now. I understand this was a U.S.-led intervention. And, you know, the, the brunt of this wasn't us, unfortunately. But the U.S. has already clearly shown that they have no interest in the country anymore. They've washed their hands, said goodbye and good luck. It's now the Britain who I want to see show leadership, show a lot more independence in forming a new coalition, working with our European partners and other friends and allies who share our values to make sure that we keep an eye on what's happening on the ground.
4: Shabnam, thanks so much for talking to us. That was Shabnam Nasimi, Executive Director of Conservative Friends of Afghanistan. In part two, we'll look deeper into the role and responsibility of foreign powers. What do recent events tell us about US foreign policy under President Biden? What message does the withdrawal send to US allies such as South Korea and Taiwan? And what moral obligations do Western nations now have to the Afghan people? To discuss this, I'm joined by Shadi Hamid, author and senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He's a contributing writer at The Atlantic and editor of the podcast and essay platform, Wisdom of Crowds. His most recent book is Islamic Exceptionalism, How the Struggle Over Islam is Reshaping the World. We're also joined by Jeremy Bowen, the BBC's Middle East editor since 2005. He reported from Afghanistan during the Soviet Union withdrawal in 1989, and he's been back to the country a number of times since. He's currently writing A History of the Middle East. Thank you both for joining us. I wanted to ask, I wanted to begin, really, by asking each of you to reflect on what we've seen in the last few days. You know, what have you made of President Biden's decision to withdraw? And what does it tell us about the United States? Shadi, you first, given that you're there.
1: Yeah, sure. I have to say that Joe Biden's speech was one of the cruelest speeches I've heard from an American president. I was shocked, quite disappointed. Putting aside, I was someone who was sympathetic to, to withdrawal. I mean, there that I don't think is as much the issue. I think most people understood that this had to be wound down at some point. But to see the lack of sympathy towards Afghanistan and the Afghan people and this kind of doubling down on the U.S. approach and the inability to take responsibility or admit fault for how things went very awry, And we saw those images, the whole world did. Tens of millions saw the pictures of Afghans trying to hang on to the U.S. Air Force plane as it was trying to leave. So I think that at the very least, regardless of where you stand on the policy debate, I think there there was a desire to see someone who was more engaged, who seemed to actually care about the fate of Afghans. But instead, what we saw was primarily blaming Afghans themselves for, as Joe Biden put it, for not willing to fight for their own future and i think considering the blunders of the us approach over the last 20 years to to shift the blame almost entirely on afghans and not acknowledge our own tragic role from the bush administration onwards from 2001 onwards i think is a hard is a hard pill for a lot of people to take And I think that also it did seem to me sometimes in listening to Joe Biden's speech that it sounded a bit like an America first policy of Donald Trump, that now we have America first, but under a democratic president. And that I think presents a real gap because President Biden came saying that he would restore more leadership, that values would again be front and center in U.S. policy. So he raised expectations. And whether it's Europeans or Asian allies, they heard that rhetoric from President Biden that this would be prioritized, this re-engagement with the world and America's America's role in the world. And then to see what seems like an approach that even Trump would perhaps endorse, I think it creates a real cognitive dissonance. And that's why I think... A lot of our allies, as they've been telling us in recent days, especially European officials who have been very vocal, who are saying this is a debacle and this makes us doubt U.S. uh, commitments to international institutions and to, to, to actually improving things, whether it comes to NATO, the U.N., so on and so forth. There are a lot of implications to this. So I think now... Many of our allies are watching and waiting to see, is this just a blip in the Biden administration or does this suggest a real reorientation and a real sign of where Biden's heart really is, which is a kind of retrenchment and looking inwards?
4: And Jeremy, for for you, I mean, this is a country you know well, you've been to Afghanistan on a number of occasions. What has it been like watching events unfold over the last week? And and what did you make of, of President Biden's speech and and his his entire decision to withdraw in the way that he has?
5: Well, you know, like I've just been hearing, I had some sympathy with the idea that the Americans couldn't stay forever. I think that was apparent, but look at the way they did it, the timing, it could have been done much, much better than that, implementing these blighted negotiations instigated by the Trump administration, talks not including the Kabul government, nation-building that, was talked about so much and so much money spent well they created a society that people either couldn't fight for or weren't prepared to fight for corruption this huge crisis in governance which is the middle east disease but gone further east and you know you mentioned in the in the introduction that i was there when the soviets left you know awfully long time ago now and i was actually at the airport watching the final flight leaving i was a stuck there as a prisoner because i had turned up without a visa and they wouldn't let me in but they wouldn't let me out of the airport either so i watched them going i couldn't report it and uh you know it was orderly there were families leaving on the final plane they just filed off no ceremony and took off and and that was it in terms of the airport anyway for the time being but looking at what's been happening, you know, I've got this sense of historical circles closing because, first off, watching that Soviet departure in, in 89, it wasn't the only reason why the USSR collapsed, of course, but it was part of it. And the, the victory there helped uh, energise jihadists who have been so much a part of our lives and events in the world and in the Middle East now for an awfully... Long time, and it was, of course, the beginning. The, about that time was the beginning of the unipolar world, where there was American hegemony with, with no significant rivals of any description. And the sense I have of the circle was, if that was starting about that time, back in 1989, were we seeing it finally ending with the, that plane taking off and those the the echoes of Saigon nineteen seventy five the helicopters at the at the uh, embassy or indeed of um, you know nine eleven twenty years ago with people falling out of planes the way they f- were throwing themselves off the twin towers
4: Shadi you're in Washington DC what's the mood been like there I mean you know we've just heard Jeremy talking about this being the end of the unipolar world and we've seen comparisons and images which look very much like the, the fall of Saigon. Are Americans generally supportive of, of President Biden's decision? Or do they feel like he's made a terrible mistake?
1: So if you look at the polling, uh, Americans seem to be conflicted and say contradictory things about whether it were whether it was worth staying and fighting the Taliban longer versus withdrawing. Some people say they supported both simultaneously, which is impossible. And, you know, this is an issue that Americans haven't been following closely, and it's remarkable how much it disappeared from the public consciousness. Let's just remember, um, President Trump signed a deal, the U.S.-Taliban deal in February 2020, where U.S. officials were shaking hands With Taliban leaders. And this got very little attention, even though those images are obviously historic, considering that the Taliban was our enemy in 2001, uh, 20 years ago after 9-11. So Americans had tuned out. So I think a lot of people are just kind of catching up. And all of a sudden, Afghanistan is front and center. And people, and, and I think, that creates this this weird situation where we've been so disengaged and now all of a sudden Americans are trying to get back and understand what's going on and there's a a lot of interest obviously and this is where optics and images make a big difference Americans or quote unquote ordinary Americans might not follow foreign policy very closely but they are sensitive to images of perceived humiliation of utter incompetence a feeling that America is violating an aspect of 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 uh, our fa- our fundamental values, and that just includes respecting human life. Uh, if there are refugees that are trying to get into that are trying to get into the airport and trying to find ways to get out because they fear for their lives under the Taliban, I think most Americans are going to be instinctively sympathetic to that. So I think this is one of those situations where images are driving a conversation. On the other hand, Americans don't really know how and why the nation-building effort failed or why someone like President Ashraf Ghani, you know, who obviously we can see now was, was quite a failure in the Afghan context. Why was he elected in the first place? How did we get to this point? That's, I think, one part of it. The other part is that, you know, in in D.C., there is a sense that America should do more if it can. So I think the tendency among commentators, including even myself, I've been quite critical of obviously of how the Biden administration has approached this. And that's what we're hearing. And And you might say, well, oh, these are just, you know, Washington elites who are always complaining about what an American president does. But I think that this is a time when, um, you know, the, the narrative is already there, and I think it's not just about American American observers. Like I said, if we look beyond in Europe and Asia, what we're hearing time and time again from our allies is a real concern that this time it's different. This is not just a logistical failure. This is not just a blip of incompetence. If this reflects something deeper in how the Biden administration looks at its role in the world then it is worth being concerned about. That doesn't mean that we should indulge in this fantasy that we could have stayed in Afghanistan forever. Like Jeremy said, I I think that there was exhaustion and there was no way to get around this fact that there was no American stomach for continuing indefinitely. So I think that one one critique you hear in Washington, D.C. a lot is, well, why couldn't we keep a residual force indefinitely? It was fairly low cost, Americans weren't particularly concerned or paying attention. But I think at some point you have to ask yourself if there's an exit strategy. So I think that that's where there's a tension where people are people in the U.S. are angry, but there isn't a very clear or appealing alternative. So a lot of us are stuck where we're torn between these two competing impulses of understanding that withdrawal had to happen sometime. But we're also aghast at at how it was actually implemented.
4: I mean, at the same time, you say that, but you know, we have seen American forces staying in South Korea for for decades now. You know, there's there's been a, a, a there was a British presence in Germany for years. There still is an American one. Was it really implausible that they could have kept a low level force on the ground? For, you know, for for a number of years yet, or if not that, could they have done more to sort of set conditions on their withdrawal?
1: Yeah, I, I think it, it it wasn't implausible. It was certainly something it's certainly something the U.S. could have done if there was political will. I think it's a question of whether there were going to be presidents who wanted to stay longer. I mean, Trump wanted to get out. To be fair, even Obama wanted to get out. And Biden certainly has been a critic for a long time. Uh, you know, As early as Obama's first term, he was against the Afghan surge that um, President Obama spearheaded. So here we've had three consecutive presidents who are sensitive to American domestic public opinion, and they wanted to find ways to draw down our presence. Now, a different president might have approached this differently. What what I would have what I would have supported was making withdrawal conditional on an intra-Afghan settlement. And I think that was the real sin in Trump's deal with the Taliban, that it was really only about asking the Taliban not to support al qaeda or give any sanctuary to al qaeda and other terrorists in afghanistan it left it left a peace agreement between afghan factions as an item to be dis- discussed in the future so it didn't really do much on that score so basically we gave up our the us gave its its greatest leverage away to the taliban because what the taliban wanted to stop was the US killing its leaders through drone strikes so in that sense the US had a lot a lot to offer there and we got very little in return And that that to me is something that couldn't really have been undone. Unfortunately, that's what the Trump administration did. And that's why there was no peace agreement between the Taliban and the Afghan government. And it's really worth emphasizing that this was just a deal between the U.S. and the Taliban. So one of the most important parties for Afghanistan's future wasn't even at the table. And now we're seeing the cost of that, that... Um, could a power-sharing agreement have been possible? It would have been very difficult, but um, did we? We didn't try. We didn't try particularly hard to kind of see that outcome or even give it a chance.
4: Jeremy, we've heard there about a succession of presidents who've been desperately looking for an exit when it comes to Afghanistan. It wasn't always like that. You you witnessed the invasion of Iraq and and much of the post 9-11 war on terror waged by George W. Bush. Were those invasions ever winnable wars, or were they destined to end badly?
5: The operation in Afghanistan, you can, back in 2001, you can, you know, I think even critics of America would have said at the time, well, look, the, the, the attacks the Al-Qaeda were training in the country, it was a secure haven for them. They attacked America, so it's legitimate for America to go, go after them. The issue has been the inability to get out of the place and declare victory and and go home. And now they're trying to do it retroactively. And clearly, it's not happening. It doesn't work. It's not accurate. As for Iraq, I don't think that could ever have gone well. It was uh, an illegal, illegitimate war that had catastrophic consequences that are still racketing around the region with, with, without question. It was... Uh, a terrible event that happened. And I suppose what we're seeing now is the ultimate failure of the two major responses of the United States to 9-11. First of all, it's been clear for many years that Iraq was going very badly wrong. But for a while, you might have been able to argue that Afghanistan had gone a little bit better. That argument cannot be made 20 years on. and You can see what the, President Biden was probably hoping for that on the anniversary of 9/11 two decades on from that terrible day uh, he would be able to say look what we have done we've we've turned the page we've drawn a line we've we've got victory well it's it's not working out like that at all and i think as well from the point of view of those uh, from um, you know the ghost of osama bin laden the the damage that al-Qaeda inflicted on the United States on 9-11 is still being felt because this is part of the consequences of that. So they can rub their hands, his his heirs, bin Laden's heirs, and say, look, we're still hurting these people. They may have killed so many. They may have claimed to have smashed us. Uh, the organisation doesn't exist the way that it used to. There are other jihadist groups now as well. So my question would be is America safer 20 years on after the attacks because of the response in the war on terror no i don't think it i don't think it is so i think what we're looking back on now is a is a protracted series of bad events that followed those attacks and coming to a real inflection point now because of what happened and the way that it happened and the sense that we're now getting into a you know, much more the world's been chaotic for a while. But this just adds to all of that. And there are lots of imponderables now, even more than before.
4: And Shadi, reflecting on that, you know, we've just heard Jeremy say, America is is not necessarily any safer now than it was 20 years ago, was after we first went into Afghanistan. Do you think this withdrawal, the way it's happened, the way the Taliban have now taken over the country, will there be a rise in terrorism as a result? What, What impact will it have?
1: There's certainly a, a risk of that, and that's something that we have to monitor very closely. I mean, the Taliban has committed, according to the 2020 agreement, that it will it will not harbor terrorists, but the Taliban doesn't have a great track record in, in terms of respecting international commitments. Obviously, we're talking about an extremist group here that has a brutal history. So this is where the U.S. has to, in some sense, stay engaged for the foreseeable future, And to track what the Taliban does or doesn't do now that it's in power, I think that the hope and if you listen to Biden administration officials, they express this repeatedly that they want to wait and see what the Taliban does and if they actually have changed compared to what they did in the 1990s when they were obviously known for public executions, stoning women, so on and so forth. And the Taliban is savvy. And they have portrayed themselves not necessarily as moderates, but as changed, that they are now more aware of the complexities of governance and that they are willing to accommodate the changes. So Afghanistan has become more open, obviously, when it comes to women's rights and the place of women in in public life and in media and culture and so on, and they have said that they will respect that. Of course, the the caveat there is they say that they will respect that, but within the limits of Sharia. And obviously their understanding of Sharia is a particularly austere one that isn't particularly mainstream in the broader Muslim world. So these are all things that we should, I mean, I think a big challenge is we as observers now, and this is probably going to be more challenging for U.S. officials, is do they try to, quote-unquote, help the Taliban government be better or succeed? Does that mean releasing funds that were frozen in Afghan bank accounts? Because, you know, civil servants and employees have to actually be paid. These are very complex issues from a legal perspective, from a moral perspective. This is a movement, the Taliban, that we consider to be very bad. Some people consider the Taliban to be even evil, so but at the same time there's no sign that the, that the Taliban is going to disappear or stop governing or not be in power for the foreseeable future. This is what Afghans have for the time being and I don't see any sign of a successful resistance or insurgency against the Taliban and do we want to see a return to endless endless civil war? So this is where I think a, a, a lot of a lot of folks are going to be in a bind, and at some level, the international community is going to have to find a way to engage in diplomacy and 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 foreign, I mean, and and bilateral relationships with the Taliban government, whether we like it or not, because as far as we can tell, there's really no other option.
4: Jeremy, I mean, Shadi has just sort of set out an incredibly morally complex area it's something we're all going to have to to find a path through now i mean just just reflect on that for for a moment is this a time where we should be you know offering up aid but in in return for you know women's rights uh, you know is this some, is this a government we should be thinking about negotiating with or is this a time to sort of make them a rogue state how do we deal with you know, do we do we start to arm the the tiny resistance there is in, in the in the panshir valley how, how do we deal with, with modern Afghanistan?
5: I think you have to deal with them. Uh, the, here in London, the British have, been, have talked about greatly increasing aid to Afghanistan, but then the throwaway line from the government minister concerned was, but of course not through the hands of the Taliban. Well, So how is it actually going to work in reality in that case? Um, I think that um, policies that have isolated rogue states, rogue governments haven't helped the people, the civilians who are are living under those administrations. The isolation of Hamas in Gaza has not helped the people who live in Gaza. Uh, Economic sanctions against Iran have not helped the plight of uh, people who aren't involved with the the government or the uh, IRGC or any of those organisations in Iran, etc, etc. You know, I saw the effects of sanctions in in Iraq in the 1990s on Saddam Hussein's pariah regime. So I think the answer is that there has to be a way of trying to do it and trying to deal with them. And maybe by offering some inducements, it might even moderate their behaviour. I mean, I'm not shiny eyed about all of this. Uh, You know, the Taliban's record is clear and is and speaks very loudly about the way that certainly some people in that organization uh, want to behave. And if, you know, you've just arrived in Kabul after years of fighting through the country with some very extreme views and having some very negative experiences, perhaps their imprisonment through perhaps being at Guantanamo uh, of the Americans and the West, then what will they want to even want to make those kinds of deals? I don't know. But I just, what I do know is I think that looking at the record in the world in the last um, 30 years or more, building walls around countries, cutting them off, that doesn't make life better from the people inside who we profess in the Western world to be wanting to assist.
4: And Shadi, earlier we heard Jeremy sort of describe, you know, the... the- how this compares to the Soviet Union withdrawal, and this sense that you know if that was the start of the unipolar world, this is probably one of the signs of, that that has come to an end. I mean, what do you think Russia and China will be thinking as they watch events unfold?
1: Well, they're probably somewhat amused, and I mean that sort of in the darker sense, by American incompetence. I'm sure that they were Russian Chinese adversaries were surprised that the U.S. would handle this this badly. But of course, this is something they rejoice at because it does it does further a narrative that America is on decline and that America isn't even good at foreign policy when it tries to be good. I mean, we've expended. So much resources, tens of billions of dollars over the past twenty years in Afghanistan, Iraq, and so on, and what we see is a record of blunder, one after the other, major miscalculations and we 've had three very different three very different presidents, so it 's not as if we can say that if only we had a different kind of leadership, well, maybe, but we had three different tries, and they were quite different from each other. Just think about Bush, Obama, and trump that 's quite a variation. So I think that if we look at the coming era as one where we're going to see more great power competition, where China continues to assert itself, especially in its own region, then the question of America's staying power becomes a very vital one. And it also has to do with big ideological questions around the nature and purpose of government. Joe Biden has said that one of the central challenges of our era is that between democracies and autocracies. And when it comes to authoritarian regimes, there are a few that are more authoritarian than China. But if democracies can't show that they can get their act together and manage things effectively, then more and more people throughout the world start to ask themselves, okay, the US has all this money, this did used to be a unipolar moment, but why has the US failed time and time again? And maybe that means that the rest of us shouldn't put our trust in America. Certainly, I, I can imagine many Afghans are thinking that right now, especially those who are allies of the US over the last 20 years. Did they make the right decision? Could they count on the US? Can they count on the US going forward?
4: Jeremy, you've seen, um, you know, you've seen wars all over the world, not just in the Middle East, but Is this the end of of America as the world's policeman? Is this the end of liberal intervention?
5: No, not necessarily. People
4: no longer rely
0: on that.
5: Um, Well, the idea of intervention was pretty discredited after Iraq. And we've seen with the absolute stasis surrounding what to do about Syria, that that idea has probably come and gone. But in terms of of using coercion to back up diplomacy, the United States is still is massively powerful. You know, what is the defense budget? Three quarters of a trillion dollars, something like that. More than a dozen or so countries below it in the pecking order. They still have fantastically powerful and capable armed forces, and they will be trying to use them in places. They're not go- They're not going to go back to nineteen. 19- 20s style isolationism but i think that as we've been hearing you know prospective allies and current allies of the u.s need to just take a bit of a deep breath you know if you have the joe biden on the phone to you saying "Look, we really would like you to stand up against china because that is our big priority now well you might think hang on this guy is not going to be there Perhaps, well, he might get through the next election, but what about the one after that? What if Trump comes back? What if anyway he doesn't support us if things go south? Uh, All those questions, and they're legitimate ones, will be in people's minds, and even long-established allies like the United Kingdom. There have been reports now that, that the Prime Minister didn't get a chance to talk to Biden about this, that he wanted to talk to Biden, and Biden went quiet on him, and that Britain British forces, of course, in, a, in an operational role pulled out years ago. But Britain itself, there was an impassioned debate in the House of Commons about things that weren't done. And influential MPs were comparing it as a crisis for Britain to Suez in 1956. I mean, I think that the, the Iraq invasion was probably worse. But, uh, you know, I think so. What I'm saying is that a lot of allies of the US, not just ones in, say, the the Pacific, basin, but also perhaps in Europe will quite rightly be saying, well, let's think a little bit harder now. And of course, they did that after Trump and they were hoping under Biden that things might change and get back, a you know, normal service would be resumed. But Afghanistan might make people think, hang on, it's it's not being resumed. They can't turn the clock back to what we thought was there before.
4: And Jeremy, watching that incredibly impassioned debate in Parliament this week, I mean, Is this the end of the special relationship? It doesn't sound like we were very, a a big part in the, the decision making process here. Is the special relationship itself in in danger? Now? Well,
5: I I don't like that phrase very much. That expression, "special relationship," because you only tend to hear it coming out of English accents, British accents, and not American mouths. Because I think it's been very special for people in Westminster, but not necessarily at all special for people in in Washington DC. And no, I think that the will we hear it even less from Westminster. Well, now? I think sensibly we ought to. Frankly, I think the phrase should be completely banned. But I, I, I yeah, there is clearly a, a a certain community of interest between Britain and the United States. But I think that this is a, a strong reminder that nations behave according to their best interests. And we shouldn't necessarily believe that the best interests of the United States are the same as that of the United Kingdom, particularly since we are now somewhat untethered in the world post-Brexit.
4: And Shadi, you know, obviously, in the United Kingdom, people are asking questions about America, and whether it will always be there as a a supportive ally. What does this mean sort of more broadly for for other allies of America? I mean, can NATO now rely on, on America to always step up?
1: Well, the problem is, we have this phrase, the international community that we hear a lot. But the international community, we're realizing more and more is a fiction. What it really means is the U.S. leading and its partners in Europe and a few other places join and then you have the appearance of an international consensus. But if the U.S. doesn't lead, then people look around and they don't see this community that's international. So I think that this is something that, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. more people will have to come to terms with And from a Europe, you know, I'll leave European affairs to you. I mean, ultimately, Europeans have to decide what that means for them. But I think that what I hear from European friends and colleagues is a sense of being taken for granted that the U.S. comes in and they assume that European allies will just stay quiet or they'll grumble and say things to the press. But then nothing actually changes European countries stay dependent on the US and they follow America's lead. But the problem is, if America's leading, then if America isn't leading, then Europe has nothing to follow. And this is where I think someone like uh, Emmanuel Macron in France has talked about this vision of strategic autonomy and establishing a more independent European approach that isn't as dependent on the US. Will that catch on? I mean, my advice to European friends would be, you have to find ways to do more on your own, because the US will probably continue to disappoint you. I wish it was otherwise. And I think the hope, as as Jeremy said, is that with Biden, normal service would resume. But normal service hasn't resumed.
4: Thank you both so much for for talking to us about that. That's Shadi Hamid, who's an author and senior fellow at Brookings Institute, and Jeremy Bowen, BBC's Middle East editor. And thank you very much for, for listening to this edition of the Intelligence Squared podcast.
0: Find out more by going to www.intelligencequared.com forward slash partnerships.